Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben here. This is episode 401 of the podcast. It is February 17th, 2021. It's early in the year. I'm always afraid I'm going to say the wrong year, but I got it right this time. Today's episode is a little different. It is audio from a LinkedIn Live discussion that I did with my friend Jim Benson recently. Jim was a guest on episode 155 of the podcast here, talking about the book he co-authored called Personal Kanban. You can find that episode at leanblog.org slash 155. Jim was also a guest for episode four of My Favorite Mistake, the new podcast series I've been doing. You can find that at markgraven.com slash mistake four. So I've gotten access to LinkedIn Live. I did a session uh, with Billy Taylor, and that was a lot of fun following up on an episode of My Favorite Mistake that Billy and I did. Um, Jim and I here, it's a, it's a fairly loose conversation. We very intentionally didn't plan out a lot, but I've gotten some feedback that this turned out to be a really good, interesting conversation. So if you want to watch the video version of it from the LinkedIn recording, uh, it's not on YouTube, but you can find it by going to leanblog.org slash 401. Thanks for listening. Oh, and speaking of my favorite mistake, I'm running a whole series of giveaways of books written by authors uh, who were guests on the show, including Katie Anderson. You can find all of that by going to markgraven.com slash contest. Uh, check out all the contests. Oh, one other one was Adam Lawrence, who was a guest here on the podcast. He has a new book out called The Wheel of Sustainability. You can enter to win a free copy of that. Again, markgraven.com slash contests. We'll start with our shenanigans, Jim. Yes, yes. And I love the fact there aren't a lot of uh, friends of mine from the professional world that would be fine with the word shenanigans. But we're going to talk about some interesting stuff here today. Um, I'm Mark Raven. Um, if you are on this link, you may be connected with me on LinkedIn. Um, we're joined today by someone. Uh, if you don't already know, I'm glad you're going to get uh, acquainted with here today. Um, I'll let him introduce himself. But Jim Benson uh, is a friend of mine. I like Jim and his work uh, a lot. He is, among other things, um, co-author of the book Personal Kanban. Um, he's got all sorts of different projects that he's working on, and, and he'll we'll, we'll weave those into the conversation. But, but Jim, thanks for being here. Um, if you want to introduce yourself for everyone, please go ahead. Okay. Uh, I'm Jim Benson. I... I started off being a civil engineer and urban planner. So I built giant things like freeways and subway systems and cities uh, around the world. Um, started a software company uh, at some point in there and became interested in the agile and lean worlds. Uh, kind of became enamored with both of the agile and lean worlds and then became disillusioned with both of the agile and uh, lean worlds. <laughs> and we'll, we'll talk about that, I bet. Yes, we, we always do. Uh, and my goal uh, in, in my personal practice is to build humane working environments for professionals of all types, uh, to make sure that people have the information they need, the agency they need, the clarity they need in order to act and do awesome stuff. 
And so I love that phrase, humane management. That's one of the, I think, uh, kind of main themes that we're going to try to build this conversation around, and it's going to go in all sorts of um, different directions. So I'm glad we could do this, Jim. Um, Disillusioned would be a cool name for a podcast. (laughs) Disillusioned with Mark and Jim. I try not to be too disillusioned, but it happens sometimes, right? That's right. We'd have a decade's worth of of content. (laughs) But um, uh, Jim was also uh, a guest of mine. I've got my coffee mug I'm going to hold up here. Uh, my favorite mistake, Jim was a guest, I think episode three of that. You can find my favorite mistake in all of uh, the podcast places. So hopefully that wasn't a mistake to be part of that podcast with me, Jim. It, I survived. Any <laughs> any podcast you can walk away from, I believe, is the, the sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you survived it. Yes. Um, here, there is, let's see something I need to address in the chat. Somebody who is just kind of post, they've got some issue, it has nothing to do with us and they kind of keep posting the same thing over and over again, so. Uh, Well, it's interesting because I actually stayed several times in that particular Arlo Hotel. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually thought it was directed at me and I was like, well. (laughs) Were you disillusioned by this hotel, Jim? Uh, so this hotel had one particularly annoying thing, which was that in two or three in the morning, your, your television would turn on, on its own because the hotel rooms were so small that they would catch the, the (laughs) signal from, from adjoining rooms. They Uh, call this a feature or a bug? I, I believe that they that they called that a we're going to ignore your 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 request that that not happen even worse and then we're going to get mad at you for uh for unplugging the television. <laughs> hey, I've always figured it's my hotel room. If there's a little refrigerator that's noisy, I'm unplugging it. I figured that's within my rights. Yes, that is. <laughs> it is unless they have the thing attached to it that says that you're stealing the television if it gets unplugged. Uh, I don't like the nice hotels you're staying in that give that warning, Jim. So we've got, um, I think, so many things we talk about here today. Um, And again, thank you you everyone for joining. Um, This phrase, humane management, I don't hear anyone else using that language. I think it's a really, uh, it's a thought-provoking phrase. I mean, what... What, how would you describe that? I guess bringing up humane management also leads to discussion of things that might be inhumane and disillusioning, but. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Tony and my business partner and I have had the good fortune to work around the world in companies of all different types. So all knowledge workers, uh, physical plants, uh, you know, the whole gamut. And what we've seen is the business goes out of its way to hire the right people and then throw barriers up in front of them that stops them from being able to act professionally. And these barriers are insidious because they're almost pre-programmed. We've been taught through a hundred years of Tayloristic thinking the org charts, the chains of command are helpful. Uh, we've been taught that people who come into a situation and say, 
hey, I know exactly how we should work. And then they order everybody to get things done. Things get done. Then they, in their narcissistic way, say, look what I did when it was everybody else that did the work, usually under duress. Um, We have meetings that have strong agendas that stop people from participating and just turn them into information sinks as opposed to sources. Uh, And the list just goes on and on, you know, uh, overly rigid schedules, overly rigid budgets, overly rigid scopes of work uh, that stop emergent learning from happening and and the right work getting done at the right time. And all this stuff is inhumane. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. and humane management is basically, are we respecting each other? Are we allowing each other the agency to behave as professionals? And are we getting the most out of each other and our teams and avoiding the rework that comes from not doing that? And I think a lot of these approaches, whether it's called lean management or some, I've heard some use the phrase progressive management, but then that brings it, we don't mean that like it from a political context, but Mm -hmm. uh, that word has different meanings. But yeah, I think humane management the argument to me is that it's not just nice, it's good business Yes, for the effectiveness of the organization in maybe a longer term perspective than some organizations are willing or able to look at, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the kind of the kernel of all of this is Conway's law, which in essence says that a product represents or is a representation of the culture that creates it. Mm -hmm. culture and the communications mechanisms behind it. And so if we have a internal internal practices that treat each other like crap, Mm -hmm. our product is in one way or another going to treat treat our customers like crap. And the the uh, I taught a class actually just across the hall from you (laughs) in Sandusky, Ohio, (laughs) in like the middle of winter, in a place that literally felt like I was in the Ohio version of The Shining. Yeah. (laughs) And I went through this whole two day class and there was a guy in it who owned a manufacturing plant who was participatory and he was there the whole time. And in the end of it, he says, "Okay, you know, I tried to get into this. I went through the whole thing. But now that we've gone all the way through it, I just feel like you're coddling people. And my response to him was, if you feel that you personally benefit from treating your people like crap, I then you should probably continue to do that. (laughs) But the 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 practical benefit here is that you're actively seeking to do the right work at the right time and avoiding rework by making sure that every professional weighs in on what's happening and why and how. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there, there, uh, I took some notes. There's so many things that we can sort of unpack um, from this or we'll peel back the onion or we'll unpack the onion and all of the above. But <laughs> the idea of take care of the employees so that they can take care of the customers is really powerful. Like in healthcare, I, I interviewed um the author, I think it was actually, it was a physician in my lean podcast series. He had a book with a provocative title. It says patients come second and that'll get people's attention, right? Mm -hmm. But what he meant was, well, it's not that patients are unimportant, but if you don't take care of the staff, the 
physicians and all of the medical providers and the entire team, mm-hmm. they're not going to be as uh, well positioned to take care of patients. And we see all kinds of correlations between, um, for example, uh, employee safety and patient safety that kind of fall that follow that reasonable chain that if the employees are physically safe and, and psychologically safe, the patients will mm-hmm. be better cared for and more safe. What's been most interesting to me in exploring the notion of psychological safety is that inherent in it is the notion that you feel safe to act. Mm-hmm. And that safety often is treated like it's, um, again, I'll use the word coddling, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. but it's it's in some way a, it, it's okay, pumpkin, <laughs> you can go ahead and act. Uh, but yeah. what what is actually the case is you've just removed the barriers from action from people and professionals don't need your coddling. They're ready to go. <laughs> yeah. They're they're sitting around more of the time just tweaked that they're not able to act. So it's, you know, what are those impediments to action that are there now? And it, how can we remove them so that people do what they do best, which is help other people? And, and, and those barriers can be, um, you know, psychological barriers. Um, you know, I think I've, I'm often reminded, our conversations often remind me of things um, said or written by W. Edwards Deming. And, you know, he, he would say, you can't motivate people. You can only hope to stop demotivating them. Yep. And, and these barriers of not allowing people to speak up, not listening to them, not providing a good environment for them. You know, the, all these things are, um, you know, making withdrawals from the motivation bucket if you will. It's, it's hard to put deposits into that bucket to create motivation where it didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would think humane management is less demotivating. And that would be important. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, I think we both, if we just, you know, the, the question would be like, you know, what are your top 25 demotivation stories that you've seen <laughs> while working, but but one of uh, one of my favorites actually comes from my wife, who was a speech pathologist, and she was working for uh, a a major unnamed hospital here in Seattle, and um, a lot of the people in OTPT, in speech pathology, and audiology are unbelievably underpaid. Uh-huh. And so kind of like teachers, they have to live a million miles from the hospital and commute to work every day uh, because uh, they just they can't afford to live in town. And so they had a new CEO of the hospital and somebody raised their hand and said, "Uh, are you going to pay us a living wage? And his response was working here is its own benefit. Hmm. You know, Hmm. it's a calling. And, and as, as will not surprise many people who know my wife, she got up and left the room and left the building and didn't go back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that was demotivating. <laughs> and, but it was a clear statement of demotivation. It was like, we absolutely do not value the services that you're bringing. Uh, and, 
it's so I know it's so counterintuitive to me, but unfortunately, it's so rote in the way that most business happens. In healthcare is interesting. We had, we had uh, a physician earlier. Uh, she posted a comment when we were talking about being disillusioned. Unfortunately, she posted that you know she's disillusioned with the healthcare system, which could mean you know all sorts of um, all sorts of different things. I, I don't know for sure if she's in the U.S. There are different reasons people get um, frustrated and burned out. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, in, in in healthcare in um, different countries. So how can we identify the demotivators? And, you know, instead of just lecturing people like, you need to be more resilient, like, well, maybe, maybe we could be more humane instead. Like, and, 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 and when and there's this, this cycle, it's not funny, it's not ha-ha funny, but the cycle where people are burned out and disillusioned, and then they get lectured by leadership, well, we're going to send you to resiliency training. Yeah. That's even further disillusioning or demoralizing. Yeah. Um, and yeah. It's like, how do you not see the, the cause and effect? But I think they're not hearing feedback from people who roll their eyes at resiliency training. And, and that's, yeah. And someone else commented, I've heard in healthcare, working in the field should be reward enough. I, I think, so let me, let me pose a question to you about intrinsic motivation, Jim. Um, that is so high and so powerful in healthcare. I think it almost gets abused. Yes. People will put up with things they probably should not have to put up with because their sense of passion is so strong until suddenly they can't put up with it anymore. And then, boom, we have burnout. Yeah. Well, and, or the danger comes actually where you burn out and then you stick around for several years. Mm, yeah. uh, and that is uh, that is terrifying. Uh, so almost everyone comes with their own package of intrinsic motivation. <laughs> uh, and, and like we're talking about, it's, it's, uh, it's trivially easy to, uh, to gaslight them, uh, to overload them, uh, to provide them with subtle or not subtle information that, 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 un, that uh, underscores that they do not have positional power and they're not going to get any. Yeah. Uh, that therefore their opinion is not necessary. And the danger for that is, uh, I mean, anyone here that has been even close to a healthcare setting knows that everyone who touches the floor of a hospital has a unique and different perspective in providing quality care, in in understanding the disposition of the patients that day, of knowing what the supply chain is for particular things, you know, whatever it might be, Uh, even even as as granular as saying this is the appropriate way to sterilize this particular thing. And that the power dynamics that are there, but they're also in every nonprofit every government agency, every business I've ever been in, those power dynamics stifle conversations and then lead us to make inappropriate decisions that are costly. Yeah. Or in some cases, deadly. Deadly. Yeah. When it comes to healthcare, Um, you know, going back to, you know, Toyota production system roots and, you know, in manufacturing settings and and people throw around language that's colorful or meant to draw attention, you know, we hear people talk about the seven deadly wastes. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, that's, I don't know if deadly is real. Like a little bit of inventory is not deadly. I, 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 I don't like 
that that terminology anymore. When when there is waste in healthcare, unfortunately, that that can be um, that can be deadly. Um, so my, my concern with the waste conversation mm-hmm. has always been that it is it leads to an easy misinterpretation of Deming's statement about it being ninety six percent of the time it's the system and four percent of the time it's the people. But 100% of the time, it's the impact on the people. Yeah. So even if you're going after the system, it doesn't mean that you're ignoring the people that are being mistreated. It means you're doing that in the service of them. So one of our lenses has to be when we're getting rid of this waste, you know, how does it help our communication? How does it help and help our respect for each other? How does it help relationships? How does it help our ability to improve those types of things? Yeah. Well, and I love that phrase of um, being of service to them. So I'll I'll, I'll add on to your phrase, Jim. Humane management would include uh, being a servant leader, and that runs the risk of being misinterpreted. But um, I love uh, this expression that I've heard um, from my friend, Daryl Wilburn, who used to work for Toyota in Kentucky and San Antonio. Mm -hmm. And the way Daryl has stated it, he says, you know, it's a leader's responsibility. So we'll underline the word responsibility or maybe both words. The leader's responsibility to provide a system yes. in which people can be successful. So this comes back to Dr. Deming, who would say, well, senior leaders are most responsible for the system. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think, you know, the way Daryl articulates it, creating a system in which people can be successful is different than saying creating a system that guarantees success. Because there is no perfect system. And this is where employee engagement and continuous improvement comes in, right? Mm -hmm. We've given you a system that is very unlikely to hurt you. It's very unlikely to be um, demoralizing, but it's Mm -hmm. not perfect. So let's work together and fixing it. Like the baseline of that system that we've provided has to be good enough as opposed to, you know, we don't want to fall into the trap of someone saying like, well, it's a systemic problem. What can we do about it? Yep. It's the system. Yep. Yeah, that the the learned helplessness card is extremely easy to play when you get beyond the personal zone of control. So setting up those initial systems, they need to be visual. Mm-hmm. They need to include triggers that allow individuals to understand how they impact the operations of the system as a whole. And then the recurring opportunities to um, either as an individual or as a group engage in continuous improvement and that all those things become expectations of your employment Mm -hmm. Uh, and not expectations like I'm going to kick your butt if you don't do it, but expectations in that is what the definition of a professional is. You practice and you improve. A couple of comments here. Um, my friend Brian, um, who's worked in healthcare, a number of different organizations. Hey, Brian. I know he's not referring to anyone in particular. He says, um, increasing resiliency to be able to handle more crap versus removing the crap producing elements is futile and disrespectful. And, and we'll, we'll frame that maybe that would also be, that would be inhumane. Yes. Um, it's sad to see. So, um, boy, you know, we, we always, Jim and I always joke about like, if we did a podcast series together, what could we call it? We, we've already brainstormed um, the title 
disillusioned and now I'm afraid. Like, I don't want to call it gloomy gusses with, uh, <laughs> with Mark and Jim because like we, we point out these problems because we, we want things to be better. We know things can be better. We can have human management. That, that is also successful management. Yeah, I think that the, the title might be Things Can Be Better. Things can be better. Things <laughs> must be better. <laughs> well, it's one of the uh, interesting things. So you mentioned you mentioned Deming. And I know that you and I have talked about this before, but uh, 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 Tony Ann and I, uh, one of our friends is a, a guy named Kevin Cahill, who's Deming's mm -hmm. grandson. Yep. And uh, when Deming was 93 years old and in the hospital and, and getting ready to pass away, uh, Kevin went to visit him and Deming said to him, there's still so much work left to do. Yes. And one of the things at some point that you have to accept when you don the, the cap of continuous improvement uh, or any of these things that we're talking about, however we might frame, you know, what we're talking about right now, is that is that we are talking about helping people through what is ostensibly the human condition, and the work is never going to be done. So it's not like you or I are going to write that book. <laughs> it says after that book, <laughs> everything was fine. <laughs> uh, but the cycle is we figure out something that we'd like to do. We come up with usually a fairly half-assed plan to do it. We force people to stick to the half-assed plan. And then we blame the failures on the people that we put into the system. And that's something that we can fix. <laughs> we can stop doing that. We can yes. recognize that that cycle is bad. I'm, I'm going to throw a link into the chat because you mentioned when Dr. Deming was in the hospital, um, he wrote uh, an article that was published um, in 1990 that would have made him 89 or 90 years old, you know, notes on his visit in the hospital and, and pointing out the systemic problems that were interfering with him getting the right care or being comfortable. And, you know, he demonstrated through those notes of, you know, not blaming the nurse mm -hmm. for what he, I think, correctly, correctly observed or intuited to be uh, systemic problems. And so I'll share those notes. I think it's really interesting to see what he observed and what he wrote about. Um, um, Hajime Oba, he's usually uh, referred to um, at, you know, as uh, Mr. Oba in, in lean circles. You know, he was mm -hmm. formerly Toyota and um, a TSSC. He passed away um, a couple of months back. Um, we, we've lost a couple legends recently. Uh, Mr. Oba passed away uh, Norman Bodek passed away. There's there's an online memorial um, for him tomorrow that um, I'll be uh, participating in. But I had a chance to interview Mr. Oba's son um, for a podcast. And, and Mr. Oba's son, Hide Oba, was working closely with his dad on, on teaching people um, TPS. And when Mr. Oba was hospitalized, you know, I, his, his, his son, you know, at a high level said that um, his dad saw all sorts of waste. So here we are, um, 30 years after the, the Deming article, um, Mr. Oba probably could have written something similar. The work, mm -hmm. there's still a lot of work to be done, as you put yep. it. Absolutely. Um, 
the and so it's easy given those things to fall into uh, uh, again kind of like a vat of learned helplessness <laughs> like the, the meta system is trying to do to us what these what these definable systems are, are doing to us and kind of what, what and not kind of exactly what what keeps Tony Ann and me going uh, through all of this and seeing it is just seeing that moment when individuals that you are working with figure out that they have been put into a victim tank <laughs> that yeah. previously they thought was an absolution tank mm. and that they can actually climb out of it. And, and what that usually looks like is you find some strong leader that strong leader says, I'm going to solve all your problems for you. You give up all of your agency and sit back and wait for that strong leader to, to solve all those problems for you. Then right. they kind of do and you double down on, on, on supporting them. And then at one point you have this epiphany, wait a minute, if we were making these decisions, <laughs> they would have, they would have been better. And, um, once people understand that, they, they feel it, they start to act on it and they act on it in immediate and uh, very exciting ways. And that's what always yeah. keeps me coming back is it's like, who in this, in this event is going to really go crazy? And I, I know I've talked too much in this spurt, but I'm going to tell one quick story. Right. No, that's right. It is at... At Turner Construction in New York, one of the projects that we worked on was um, the Coney Island Hospital Project. And people who are here, some people probably heard me talk about it before. But the important thing was we started off by setting up the project with what Turner calls the right environment, mm -hmm. which is, does this project have an environment that is conducive for professional behavior? Uh, then we set up a bunch of visual controls and blah, 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 blah. People got agency, all the good stuff. But the test wasn't their throughput. It wasn't their customer satisfaction. It was this. When uh, COVID hit, as you might guess, on a construction site, COVID would be disruptive. <laughs> uh, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, sites were shut down. People had to go home. They'd never worked not right next to each other before. Th that was the... That was the group that for the rest of all of Turner Construction said, this is how we're dealing with COVID. They came up with an immediate plan about how they were going to communicate, how they were going to remain in touch, how they were going to let workflow, blah, 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 because they had such a strong system set up to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a couple other thoughts come to mind um, from what you said there, Jim. One is, I think there's there's a different learned helplessness where when you get into the dynamic of um, you, you're sort of conditioned to, you know, the idea that as an employee, you can point out problems. We want you to speak up, but management's going to fix everything. Mm -hmm. That removes some semblance of, of risk from the employee, because then when that solution doesn't work, it wasn't your failure. You can sort of point and laugh or be upset mm -hmm. at management. And, and people then get very conditioned over time. Um, to not speak up, 
But what, what's, what's beautiful to see is when we start breaking that dynamic of kind of putting a stake in the ground and saying, you know, okay, we're going to change the culture. Leaders are going to start asking for ideas, not just point out the problem, but come up with ideas and then be a coach instead of the leader being coach instead of leader being doer, mm-hmm. like getting people participating in improvement and fixing small things that they care about. Mm-hmm. They're not being given a quota. You must do four improvements per year. You know, that ends up maybe in an unintuitive way being demoralizing or it sets a cap on uh, participation instead of setting um, a minimum. So, you know, it's just, it's great to see when people who might uh, seem disengaged or burned out, um, I'm going to, you know, and when they start to turn that around, I, I think of a phrase um, used by Quint Studer, who's really well-known in healthcare circles, um, author of many books, uh, consultant and speaker. And now he's a, he's a minor league baseball team owner. So that's kind of the <laughs> next phase. And he's still very involved in uh, all sorts of things in the Pensacola, Florida business community. But Quint uses the phrase um, fire starter. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I, I don't know if I'm paraphrasing it correctly, it's been a while since I've read his work on this, but I think, you know, ideas that, you know, people have this fire inside them and people may build up kind of a crusty, salty exterior that hides the fire. And, and I think some leaders and some employees can serve the role of being a, a fire starter, if, if not reigniting the fire, helping the fire come out and create warmth and improvement the the so in uh in john shook's work where he's you know trying to get leaders to help people systematically solve problems um the uh, the strength there is that uh, um, you know I've seen servant leadership run off the rails where they basically just become weird milk toast visionless <laughs> spineless people who can't make a decision uh, it's like you don't want that but what right. you do want is for the leader to understand that, there are times when you're a coach. There are times when you're a team member. There are team times when you are like the vice president of the United States, where you're the tiebreaker vote. Yeah. Uh, and that 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 the reason that you get paid more is because you are assuming the risk of wearing that many hats at once, and the mantle of responsibility for being able to wear them elegantly, mm. which. Almost no one does. Yeah. Uh, but what is exciting is when you get together with a group where the power, where the the problem becomes the focus and not the power distance. Mm-hmm. And then everyone gets together. They all work, you know, whether it's on the A3 or some other problem solving mechanism, but they all work together with purpose and agency to solve that particular problem. And then when they're done, they don't remember the problem. Yeah. They remember the feeling of the collaboration and the benefits that that brought. And my worry is quite often what I see is people will get the book managing to learn and they'll see that as a one-to-one relationship. Mm. 
boss coaching person as opposed to a group processing problem. And that's, that's, I think the next level of evolution for lean is to start to break down those silos of one behaviors and get teams to operate as teams. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I hear you saying is, you know, kind of, um, I think to me, lean management or we can call it humane management respects the perspectives of people, regardless of their position in the hierarchy. Um, I think of this expression, it's probably used more broadly, I've heard it used in healthcare, of um, the hippo principle, yep. Yep. the um, what the, uh, the, the highest paid person's opinion in the room, we're going to follow the hippo, um, which is not HIPAA, that's different. Because <laughs> then we wouldn't be able to talk about the opinion. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've, we've got to respect and engage people. Um, you know, to me, servant leadership doesn't mean that you do everything, you do whatever your employees say, like there's, there's a balance. Um, okay. I think leaders, instead of having all the answers, as you go higher up in the leadership chain, those leaders should probably have a broader perspective. They should be you know, strategic in their thinking and not um, spineless. I, I jotted down this phrase. Here's another brainstorming. We'll, we'll do a podcast called Neither milquitose nor spineless. That's a mouthful. Does that describe both that, of us? That would be, it, it would be like noma, noma or sp. It is not. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't even. It doesn't even concatenate well. No. <laughs> but um, so so Jim, tell us. You know, you, there's all kinds of things you do. You've been doing. Uh, you've been offering um, online education, and um, you've got a new initiative. Um, I, I won't steal your thunder. Maybe you can talk about what you've been doing and how that is evolving into what you're now going to be offering. So so seven years ago now, we started Modus Institute, which was an online school. And ostensibly, we started it so that we could stop traveling for work. And every year, work travel increased. <laughs> uh, so we were rather unsuccessful at doing that. But during COVID, obviously, no one could travel anywhere. And so all of a sudden, not only was that popular, but the need to go into depth uh, about things, which we do when we're coaching or, or teaching live, that suddenly became important too. And at the same time, we were being met with requests for people saying, you know, you guys have never offered a certification in uh, the way you think. (laughs) Uh, And uh, so we were always kind of against certifications because certifications tend to be like you you put people in a room for two days, you don't care if they pay attention, then you give them a piece of paper at the end and then you say you're certified in, you know, whatever the heck this is. And it says Jim was here. Jim was here. Yes. Yes. Certificate of certificate of ability to sit still. And um, and in the agile world, there's just been like this this vomitorium of of certifications. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's just it's just like been absolutely devastating to watch the unbelievable crap that has come out in the community as a whole. So when people said you need to do a certification, we were like, I don't know about that. So when COVID came along, we're like, okay, if we did that, 
what are the what are the problems that we're trying to solve you know as good lean people and how would we make this certification work so what we wanted was a certification in what we've been talking about today which is like humane management can we provide a system or a certification that teaches people systems thinking that teaches people what systems actually look like when they're in place so even right now in this call mark and i have a system we won't talk over each other. Uh, we respect each other. We're gonna we're gonna riff off what each other's saying. We're not gonna like run off in some other direction and and uh, and bogart the call. Even that is a system. So understanding what those components are, and then we look at those in terms of like how do we build visual controls? How do we have meetings? How do we prioritize our work? How do we sequence things? And over the course of four months, not two days, but four months, we arrive in the end with a group of people who have gone through an experience together. So it's collaborative with your peers. Uh, and there's two levels. The first level is a certification, which is study at your own pace, but still with peers. The other is an accreditation where you get together in a defined cohort and you go through as a group and you have like assignments that you do at, you know, that you have to do as a group. Yeah. And what has been rewarding about this is we were able to like go deep. So give a lot of content, but we also had to really refine the content because now it was going to be delivered in a, you know, in a repeatable format. Mm -hmm. So in order to do that, uh, you can't really see it behind me, but it's on the screen behind me, is we have five lenses that we view systems through. Communications, relationships, respect, um, uh, flow, <laughs> and, uh, and PDSA. Yeah. And those lenses are kind of what I felt have always been missing from agile and from lean mm. is both agile and lean have a lot of rhetoric around how we respect individuals. And then we have a lot of processes that just make people do the same thing over and over again. And we train them to do that thing. And then we think that they understand the process or the, the, the ethics when even we don't really understand the ethics. So mm -hmm. the ethics here are, are you all communicating with each other, with your extended work colleagues, with your customers? Is that communication happening? Mm -hmm. um, do the people that are involved understand that each of those communications, that every piece of work that I get to do each day, that this isn't just something I'm doing, but it is a relationship. Mm -hmm. Every task is something you're doing for somebody else. There's always a beneficiary. Yeah. The, it, doing it right is a form of respect. Knowing what work is coming my way is a form of respect. There's the respect runs so deep and it's so simple at the same time. Uh, that flow isn't just the flow of work, but it's also psychological flow. Are we surprised by crap all the time or do we kind of know what's coming? Can we get into it? Can we focus? Can we work well with others? And then finally, PDSA is 
on so many occasions, I've heard lean people go in, they'll work a couple times with the client, the client will go off the rails and the lean coach will get, or sensei, will get up, will get all uptight. Right. But what they didn't do was build a system of respect that made people know, here's how I fit continuous improvement into my daily work. Right. Because daily work will always, always, 100% of the time, daily work is a Mack truck and your improvement tasks is a squirrel. Oh, no. <laughs> I was thinking of, oh, you, you, could, you could say, you know, that plastic bag that's floating across the road. And <laughs> well, that is, that have is, the plastic bag floating around. But. That's a little less gory. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, didn't mean to I'm sorry I interrupted. That's no, you're you're absolutely I say, fine. I was about to say that's I didn't where I was gonna land it when I clearly did. So now I'm talking over you. Please go ahead. <laughs> Basically, you just gotta know that any system you set up will probably have a graben in it. <laughs> what does and that you just mean? have to know how to deal with the graben. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. Hey, I got, uh, from what you said there, Jim, another idea, if we do a podcast together, we can call it Mark and Jim's Vomitorium of Management Ideas. That's, uh, I can't see why that wouldn't appeal to everyone. I, I can just see the t-shirts now. Oh, there we go. Mark. <laughs> so um, people can learn more about the certification at modusinstitute.com. Is that right, Jim? That is correct. Okay. Um, so thank you for sharing about that. And um, I can be certified as a student of Jim Benson. I'll do that. <laughs> I'll take a look at that. You've definitely sat through enough, enough, enough things of mine in enough different states and countries. But it's um, not enough. I'm, 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 I'm happy to sit through more. Watching Jim uh, teach with a room is a sight to behold because it involves, you know, a flip chart and many, 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 many post-it notes. <laughs> you want to talk about that a little bit? I mean, you know, when you, when you have the opportunity to be in front of a room, Jim does not PowerPoint you to death. No, no, I, uh, I despise PowerPoint and, and, and always have, but, uh, the, the, the notion of pull is very important to me. And so, uh, in every class that I give, there are key points that need to be hit in the class, but the narrative of how to get to those points always needs to be what, what um, uh, marketing people call localized. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so the people in the room will very quickly let me know just in the questions they ask or the things they choose to talk about, what's important to them and what their specific filters are. So when I use the post-it notes to say, you know, here's how to visualize your work or here's how to respect each other or here's how to, you know, you know, bathe a tiger. I don't know, whatever it is that we might be talking about, um, that it can always be immediately contextualized for the people that are in the room. And I love doing it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's like no other way of saying it. I just absolutely love doing that. Uh, it's, it, it, it's not, so there's like books about active listening and uh, active listening is a good thing, but there's something deeper 
than active listening, which involves, and I'm not quite sure how to put this right now, but it involves really trying to understand the pain behind whatever the person that's talking to you is saying, you know, they're like, they're saying this happens and they're kind of laughing it off. And you have to know what part of that laugh is the pain cry and what part Mm. of that laugh is them just honestly being able to laugh it off. So you don't overvalue it, but you don't miss the important part. And uh, if that were a skill that I could figure out how to impart, Oh, I'd be so full of myself. (laughs) (laughs) That could be another name for the podcast. Welcome to Full of Ourselves with Mark and Jim. (laughs) So with with Jim and Mark. uh, at, At Turner Construction again, the Turner Construction uses the term active caring. And I just want to point out that they're a construction company. <laughs> Easy now. They're not supposed to care about this stuff. Mm. And that I, I just adore that company, not because they paid me to, but because I actually saw them engage in active caring. And they're a 117 year old multinational construction company. Yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's less surprising when the word love gets used in healthcare. Um, you know, I worked as an engineer in manufacturing companies or even in, in software settings. You don't use the word love, meaning like, I guess, you know, platonic love. Like, it's just, what, what do you mean love? There's no love in engineering. Yeah. You can hear the Tom Hanks lines Hanks. themselves. <laughs> but um, I had a chance to go, um, this was back in 2009. Um, to the Netherlands. There's a, a hospital there, St. Elizabeth Hospital, that was um, very active in, in trying to become a lean culture. And the phrase that they used, the banner, the overarching, they weren't calling it lean. They weren't calling it lean six sigma. They weren't calling it performance excellence or whatever phrase you might use. Uh, Dr. Jacob Perone, who was an orthopedic surgeon, he was one of their main physician leaders and lean champions. He stood up in front of the room and talked about how their program, what the phrase they used translated is loving care. That's the goal, right? And and so that people didn't misunderstand that reducing waste and improving systems was somehow about cold, ruthless efficiency. (laughs) They pointed out the idea that when a nurse doesn't have to be overburdened, when a nurse isn't constantly running out of the room to chase down supplies that should have been staged in the room for the nurse so the nurse can you know, be a nurse, when you eliminate that waste, that frees up time for, as they put it, for loving care, to not be rushed, to take a moment when the patient is anxious about the surgery they're going to have tomorrow to be able to answer their questions instead of saying, I'm sorry, but I have another task to do. I'm sorry, I have to be ruthlessly efficient. (laughs) I have to be ruthlessly efficient. And so I remember him saying, like we were talking afterwards, like, you know, loving care. And he was like, I do not think this translates well from Dutch. I'm like, no, I think, I mean, the Dutch word for it, you know, like many Dutch words is probably a very long, multi (laughs) polysyllabic word. But no, I think think that translates beautifully. I I, I would want to see more loving care. I would want to see safer care, better care, 
better workplaces, or we, we could use the word humane. Here we go. Humane care, humane yep. workplaces, since Jim sparked this discussion by talking about humane management. Yep. And even in healthcare, there's a need to do better along those lines. When healthcare wants to be that, they aspire to that, but things get in the way. Systemic barriers get in the way. So, so one of the questions up there from from Charles that, that's about to roll by is aren't stand-ups or huddles uh, uh, a way of respecting people? And they 100% absolutely are. And uh, in our meetings class on Modus Institute, when you get to the huddles, stand-ups and huddles uh, video for that, it starts off with me sitting right here in this chair saying, let me be unequivocal about this. Huddles are mandatory. <laughs> and it's the only thing, actually, that I believe are mandatory. However, uh, one of the dangers that we can run into is like in Agile, there is this notion that a stand-up meeting, which is the Agile version of a huddle, um, should start off with people saying what they did yesterday, what they're going to do today, and if they have any blockers. And I would say to you that number one, that's overly ritualized. Number mm. two, it's boring. And three, mm. it's idiotic. Yeah. <laughs> the goal is for people to get together and know what's coming up and what they need to tactically deal with that day and how they can help each other. If you have lost track of what your team is doing between yesterday and today, you have different problems. Yeah. And yeah. so the respect there comes from people showing up and saying, how can I help everyone that's in this room? Not here's what I'm going to do today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would modify uh, what you said there. I would say huddles can be respectful. And with anything, there are huddles done well, and there are huddles that become pointless routines. Mm -hmm. Like I can tell from the body language, if I'm ever... You know, back in the day when we would do physical huddles, and I look forward to doing those again, being invited to come observe a huddle, and you can tell from the body language, are people crossing their arms and staring at their shoes, mm -hmm. waiting for the huddle to be over, or is it a good huddle? Like, you, you can tell that within seconds, I think, and mm -hmm. you know, that might provide an opportunity then um, to coach whoever's leading the huddle or whoever's responsible for the huddle, just to do a cycle of reflection. How's this working? Was it working? And now and sometimes you're like, yeah, people aren't as engaged in the huddle as they used to be. Um, well, do you have any ideas about how we could address that instead of just suffering through it? That's right. <laughs> Things can be better. It comes back to that point again, right? Things yep. can be better. Um, I get criticized sometimes for being a critic, but I say, well, I, but things can be better. I am. Yeah. But, yeah. See, so that's what you need. You've got the Mark Graben scowling meme. You need the Mark Graben smiling meme, too. There's, no, there's that picture a friend of mine kind of memed up. It's more of a smirk than a scowl. <laughs> kind of the, are you serious? A smowl? A skirt? Um, but you know, as we keep coming, uh, uh, the, the, <laughs> Brian commented again, I'd love a show of just the two of you brainstorming show titles. <laughs> we'll call our podcast. We'll come up with the title someday. Then, now. Yes, that's right. I feel like the vomitorian, Jim's management ideas, vomitorian. So, um, so I don't know. Anything else you want to add, Jim? We 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 maybe we'll go wrap up in a couple of minutes. Uh, or you know, we've been joined today 
Uh, yeah. My pal, Jim Benson, you, you can learn more about, you can look, click on his LinkedIn profile. Um, you can go find, you can find him here, of course, and you can also find his company, uh, Modus Cooperandi, ModusInstitute.com. Tell the, the story behind the name, Modus Cooperandi. Yeah, so uh, uh, the name Modus Cooperandi was actually uh, coined by a guy named Ken Thompson, who uh, back when I had my software company used to work with me. And he and I got the idea that we were going to do a regular video interview series. This was before the word podcast existed. <laughs> yeah. uh, that was about just about collaboration. And so he went off to find out, figure out the names for them. And the two names he came back with were Collaborwalkie and Modus Cooperandi. <laughs> oh, wow. uh, and uh, when I started uh, the, the company, the, the Modus Cooperandi company, uh, I used that name because our our subtitle has always been performance through collaboration. Uh, whenever we work together, we work faster, we work smarter, and we have less defects. Just just that simple. And when we work as silos or silos of one, every one of those silo walls introduces negative uh, negative negative stuff into, into our, into our stream. Yeah. Um, and so everything that Tony Ann and I have built in the decade that we've been doing this is, um, actually more than a decade now is, um, geared at getting people back to what we do naturally, which is work with other people. So my, uh, uh, great great grandparents uh, were sod busters in Nebraska, like they literally moved there, built a house out of out of sod, <laughs> and, and lived in it. And during those times, you did not call a contractor to come build your barn or put up your fences. You and your neighbors worked on all of your farms kind of simultaneously. Uh, we. And then as we entered into the 20th century and started to industrialize, we started to identify the work of individuals and then separate us from that natural tendency to help out. Mm -hmm. And it has been to our detriment. Yeah. Uh, and so we seek nothing less than, uh, than to return human beings to what Eleanor Ostrom has shown is our preferred ways of working. That would be humane. That would be humane. It would suck less. <laughs> Things can be better. So um, well, it was really, uh, really fun to discuss humane management with you, Jim. I want to thank everyone who um, has been watching and listening and um, commenting. And again, um, you can go check out modusinstitute.com or moduscooperandi.com. We're we keep there. joking about doing a podcast. I don't know. I've got a lot of podcasts on my plate these days, but I can I can make time for we, you. We will, we will we will do more. Well, cool. So uh, it's uh, it's good to make use of uh, this LinkedIn Live platform. Hopefully, this was a good use of it. I mean, things can always be better, but I hope the conversation was good enough to be interesting, thought provoking a good break in your day, perhaps serve that function for me. So I hope you feel the same, Jim. Good stuff. Absolutely. Great.
So um, again, Jim was, I'm going to plug a couple of the podcasts. Uh, My Favorite Mistake uh, is a, a podcast that Jim uh, was was a guest on. You can find that at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. Jim has been a guest on my Lean Blog Interviews podcast. And um, maybe we can get, I think uh, your, your collaborator and partner, Tony Ann, um, was watching at least earlier um, yep, Tony Ann, I'm going to put a call out. Uh, maybe would, you, maybe you have a my favorite mistake story to share. It would be good to do that. One. <laughs> I, I I can't see her, but I guarantee she's laughing. <laughs> <laughs> she All might right. talk about her most her 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 favorite mistake, but I'm sure she can find one <laughs> that she will talk about. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's one. Yeah, my favorite mistake that I'm willing to talk about. That would be the full name <laughs> of the podcast, maybe. So, all right, Jim. Hey, thanks a lot. We'll, yep. uh, we'll talk again soon. I hope. Yes, indeed. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.